Good morning, Mosaic Church. We are so glad you're here to worship with us today. If you're new to Mosaic, we are so glad that you're here with us. As a church, Mosaic exists to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like more information about our vision, if you'd like to get connected to the life of our church through community groups, or if you'd like to find an opportunity to serve, you can text the word Mosaic to 97000 and we'll follow up with you this week. We had such a great time on Thanksgiving this past week, serving meals and sharing the gospel with those in need in our community. To all who served in any capacity, we are so thankful for you and your commitment to the mission with us. As we move into December, we will release our holiday schedule and all the ways we're planning to be the church together through the end of 2022. And now, as we get ready to worship through singing, we just want to remind you that children are always welcome with us in service. We also have a kids' ministry for kids' birth through fifth grade, where they will have a time of worship and gospel-centered Bible teaching that is age-appropriate, as well as a nursing mother's room just outside the lobby, should little ones get hungry or restless. Again, we're glad you're here today. Let's worship Jesus together. Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> Once a year I do this, and it seems like every year I have sinus issues <laughs> whenever I preach, so... Hopefully that's not going to hinder us today, but uh, I really appreciate some grace and understanding in that. Um, I hope you all had a, a great Thanksgiving break, uh, spent with family and, and friends and eating a lot of uh, delicious foods. And on that note, I have the privilege of preaching a sermon to you on the Sunday before you have to go back to work. So, yay, let's do it. <clears throat> if we haven't officially met... Uh, my name is Jason Coe, and one, I'm, I'm one of the elders here at Mosaic Church. And I'm really glad that you're able to join us on this Sunday morning as we worship Jesus together. A few months ago, as I was going through the study for this particular sermon, I was reflecting on the title. And during one of our evening conversations, I had mentioned to my wife, Taylor, that I was struggling with the title. And out of nowhere, like she immediately says, Pierce for our transgressions. And I thought to myself, well, that was easy. <laughs> and I was quickly humbled by the fact that this was the title that I had been waiting for. So when in doubt, ask your wife, okay? <clears throat> I owe a great deal of this sermon uh, to people like Dr. Truman Davis, uh, who is the vice president of the American Association of Ophthalmology, and Dr. Pierre Barbette, who was a French physician and the chief surgeon at St. Joseph's Hospital in Paris, both men devoted a large portion of their lives to study the events and the physical sufferings of Jesus. And uh, Dr. Barbette, who even performed experiments on cadavers to further substantiate his claims on the sufferings of Christ, would go on to write the book, A Doctor at Calvary, The Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ, as described by a surgeon. And a large portion of my Sermon is based on their findings as well as other medical resources. This morning, I'd like to take us back to Calvary, but I'd like to present Calvary to you in the form of focusing primarily on the physiological sufferings of the man Jesus Christ. And while I do understand that this is not Passion Week, my years of walking with Jesus has repeatedly brought me back to the cross, as I'm sure this would be the same for many of you. Because the passion of the Christ is essentially the very foundation of the biblical gospel that we believe and proclaim. And when you reflect on the events leading up to the death, 
burial, and resurrection of Jesus, how could we not come to the conclusion that this may in fact be one of, if not the most important subject matter to meditate on? Because as I just said, it's the foundation of our beliefs as Christians. As Dr. Barbet would write, the most mysterious truths of God have been materialized into existence, which is the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the redemption of mankind. And while focusing on the major events surrounding the passion of the Christ is something we more commonly do when we read through the, uh, the Gospels, today we're going to focus on some of the details of those major events that hold an equally infinite value. As an example, we have read time and time again on how Jesus was falsely accused, arrested in the middle of the night, stood trial before the Sanhedrin before he was delivered to Pilate. Pilate then ordered Jesus to be scourged and afterwards would wash his hands publicly to declare his innocence in the death of Jesus. Giving in to the demands of the crowd, Pilate then delivers Jesus to the Jewish leaders to be crucified, and they crucified him. And yet, through no fault of our own, we read through these points in Scripture not realizing to a fuller extent the weight of what Jesus experienced, not only mentally and emotionally, but physically. We read this text and view it as a cruel and inhumane form of punishment and have often heard how crucifixion was the most horrific way to die, but there's no definitive picture that is painted for the reader. And thanks to the advancement in science and medicine, we now have the ability to better understand this, such as the biological details that show how just about all of the muscles in Jesus' body were likely cramping during his crucifixion. Now, before we get started, I'd like to mention a few disclaimers. First, this is not an all-inclusive study. I'm not proclaiming that within this sermon lies all the scientific data surrounding the events of the Passion. This was just my study on the subject matter, but I can assure you that there are far greater depths to this analysis. So if you're interested, please take the time to conduct this research yourselves, and I'm sure it'll be very rewarding. Next, I will not be placing much emphasis on every major or minor event of Passion Week. I would just take way too long, and this sermon would never end. And once again, I'm really just wanting to focus primarily on the physical account of Jesus' sufferings. And lastly, the purpose of this sermon was not to determine conclusively the cause of Jesus' death. The biblical accounts don't permit that level of precision. The physiological manifestations I'll be presenting are reflective of the common and natural responses of the body when it's exposed to certain conditions but they're not meant to reflect what exactly happened at Calvary. Dr. Michael Baden, who is the chief medical examiner in New York City, states, not only is it impossible to draw truly reliable medical conclusions about Christ's death, but trying to do so may hopelessly confuse faith and science. There is something beautiful about faith, and it stands on its own feet. Conflict is created when one tries to give faith scientific underpinnings. They are two different kinds of belief. And while we are not bound to scientific evidence to believe the claims of Scripture, if science is going to serve a purpose in the events of Calvary, it's going to be for the sole purpose of enlightenment. So let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, we love you, dear Lord. And as we take this brief time to focus on the events of Calvary and the sufferings that you endured, I pray that we would recognize your holiness, the weight of our sin, and how great a cost our salvation truly was. I thank you for the ability that we now possess to better understand the unjust sufferings that you bore in faith and obedience to God the Father and out of your great love for us. My prayer is that this knowledge would not only be received as purely informational, but rather something that would pierce our hearts in conviction as a reminder of your lordship that would result in our absolute surrender, faith, and obedience to you. We are eagerly awaiting your return, but until that day, we pray that the message of the true gospel would spread like a wildfire throughout our city and the nations where others would recognize the truth of your love, grace, and mercy. Father, I ask that you would be greatly increased during this time as the glory to be had in anything we do is all yours. We love you and praise you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'd like you to imagine a first-century Roman walking into the doors of the church or the house of a Christian today. And can you imagine how surprised they would be in seeing a cross hanging on the walls? You might have heard this analogy in the past, but it would be the modern-day equivalent of walking into a house to see an electric chair model hanging on the wall for decorative purposes. Because for them, the cross was an instrument of death. It signified a one-way journey that led to excruciating pain, humiliation, and a slow, agonizing death. The cross carried a different weight and meaning back then. It was something that invoked dread and fear at the mere thought of it. It also served as a symbol to the masses that undermining the Roman government and laws would not be tolerated, and there would be a horrific price to pay. And I think it's important that we take a moment to reflect on the cross and crucifixion from the perspective of a first century Roman so that it would help us better understand the depths of sufferings of Jesus and in turn the depths of his great faithfulness and devotion to God and his immeasurable love for us. And while Holy Week includes many events over the course of an entire week, starting with Palm Sunday where Jesus enters into Jerusalem, I'm going to be starting with Holy Thursday from the time that Jesus is at the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the word Gethsemane means oil press, and many oil presses at that time were in caves. The temperature in the caves allowed for better olive oil production and provided natural protection from different elements. Biblical accounts from Mark 14 and John 18 indicate that it was a cold night when Jesus prayed in Gethsemane as it says Peter was warming himself next to a fire. Jesus' time at the Garden of Gethsemane is a really vulnerable moment for him because this is immediately following the Last Supper with his disciples, where he tells them yet again of what would soon be happening to him, the painful betrayal that he would experience from his disciples sitting with him, and his upcoming arrest, torture, and crucifixion. At this point in time, Jesus is overwhelmed with anguish over what he would soon be experiencing. He withdraws with the three disciples that are closest to him, Peter, James, and John, and he seeks refuge in the garden where he is on his knees crying out to the Father. 
Now, it's important to note a few things here. Jesus has been awake since early morning as preparations for Passover still had to be made. Covenant obligations still had to be fulfilled at the temple. And there was also the festival of unleavened bread. It was later in the evening that Jesus gathered with his disciples for the Last Supper. And after the Passover meal with his disciples, Satan would prompt Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. It says in John 13, starting from 27, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So now we have Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, and in Mark 14, we can see that the prayer lasted for at least over an hour, possibly three. Starting from verse 32, we read, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now consider the words that report how his soul was very sorrowful, even to death. Praying the same words over and over, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you, Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In Luke's account, he reports that Jesus was in such agony that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. After praying that the Father's will and not his will would be done, it says in verses 43 and 44 of chapter 22, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The sweating of blood without injury or trauma has been termed hematidrosis, and it's a very rare medical phenomenon that in involves the spontaneous rupturing of the capillaries. Now, th these are the small and delicate blood vessels that exist throughout our body, and it connects the arteries and veins, and they function to transport blood nutrients, and oxygen throughout our body. So what's happening here is that these tiny blood vessels that are connected to the sweat glands, they rupture, and they cause them to secrete blood that is mixed with sweat. Now, there have been some reported cases throughout the world of abnormal and spontaneous bleeding in different parts of the body, and the common finding in just about all the cases have been great mental disturbance 
following on profound emotion and great fear. And that's what Luke was referring to when it says that Jesus was in agony. It signified a combination of immense struggle and anxiety. So consider the mental and physical state of Jesus at this particular moment in time. He's at the garden, the sympathetic nervous system is engaged, and this triggers the uh, fight-or-flight response. And he is on his knees, crying out to the Father. He is struggling through the natural desires of his human heart to bypass the issue that was set before him, which was to drink the cup of the wrath of God as he takes on the sins of the world. Now, I can assure you that there's no man or woman in our sinful and fallen state that could possibly understand the conflict that Jesus was feeling here. Because in all the years of Christ's humanity, he had never experienced even a slight glimpse of sin. He had never known any barrier between him and God the Father. Jesus, who loves his heavenly Father and detests sin because it stands in such opposition to him and future, bear all the horrible sins of the world, past, present, and future. And what's worse, he was going to experience being the sacrificial sin offering that was going to be tortured, crucified, and forsaken by the Father. And that level of sorrow is something that we in our fallen state cannot fully comprehend. But that's exactly what he felt, incomprehensible sorrow. And the weight of this realization had caused great agony in Jesus. His obedience to always abide by the will of the Father remained untainted, which is something we don't often see in man. I mean, if you consider the immediate examples of Jesus' disciples, this is the closest three out of the remaining 11. And what are they doing? They're sleeping. Now, this wasn't a question of their desire to stay alert in response to Jesus' command to watch and pray, but their will was just not equal to the equation. But not when it comes to Jesus, never Jesus. His will is always equal to the equation when it comes to fulfilling the will of the Father. And yet, though he was fully divine, we see the agonizing torment that he experiences in his humanity when praying at the garden to the point where he begins to sweat droplets of blood. And this rupture of the capillaries has caused his skin to become somewhat sore and tender while it's waiting for the torturous blows to come. Shortly after, Judas arrives with a platoon of the Roman guard with a tribune just to make sure that the arrest was conducted in an orderly format. Jesus stepped forward and the words, I am, were powerful enough to throw his assailants to the ground. Now, this is the last manifestation of his divine and sovereign power that we read about before he selflessly abandoned himself to the will of the Father. It's now late into the night when Jesus first arrived before Annas, who is the former high priest of Jerusalem and father-in-law to the current high priest, Caiaphas. During the preliminary questioning by Annas, one of the Roman guards hits Jesus in the face with his hand as he interpreted Jesus' response as disrespectful. And not too long after, Jesus is brought before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and he remains silent for the most part as they question him until Caiaphas asks the question in Matthew 26, verse 63, I adjure you by the living God, 
Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus responded, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is basically responding to his question of, I adjure you by the living God, by responding, I am the living God. You can imagine why the council became so enraged to the point where they would begin to spit on and throw hard strikes to the face of Jesus. In Luke's gospel, it even goes to show how they blindfolded him, and they each took their turn in striking and mocking him by asking, prophecy to us, O Christ, who is it that struck you? The guards join in on the process as Mark's gospel reads, and the guards received him with blows. Now keep in mind, this is not an impartial crowd executing a just punishment. This is a group of people that have such malice and bitterness towards Jesus that they're likely not holding anything back in their strikes. Jesus' body by this point has already experienced enough trauma to be filled with great pain and discomfort. Headache has set in if it were not already there along with what was likely dizziness and ringing of the ears. This ordeal eventually came to an end, and by the end of the evening, Jesus had suffered a beating at the hands of his accusers. A few hours later in the morning, Jesus, who has likely not had any sleep, was already worn out from fatigue, dehydration, and hunger, and was likely swollen and bruised from the previous night, would be dragged to the other end of Jerusalem. Jesus is now standing before Pilate, who struggled with the idea of crucifying him as he found no guilt in him. But Pilate eventually ordered the scourging of Jesus, thinking that this would satisfy the murderous appetite of the crowd. Now, scourging was a part of capital punishment carried out by the Romans, and it was intended to weaken a victim to the point of being nearly dead. And this would shorten the time of their crucifixion. Roman soldiers had truly mastered the art of carrying out these brutal forms of punishment, and they knew exactly how to inflict the greatest amount of damage to a victim. Now keep in mind that there are many people who have died from the scourging alone because of the severity of the trauma. The scourging was accomplished with an instrument called the flagrum, which has numerous leather straps that are fixed at the handle, and towards the ends of the straps are balls of lead, similar to fishing weights, with small shards or pieces of bone attached at the tip. And by Hebrew law, the number of lashes should have been limited to 39, but it's highly doubtful that Roman legionaries would have abided by Hebrew law. So it's more likely that there was no number, there was no limit to the number of lashes. There would have been two legionaries that flogged Jesus, one on each side of him, And most of the strikes would have been to the back portion of his body as the chest would have been bound against the column. But considering the length of the leather straps, the weight of the balls of lead, the shifting of Jesus' body during the scourging, and the repositioning of the soldiers throughout the scourging, it's likely that the flagrum would also strike the front of his body. The Roman soldiers would have taken Jesus removed his garments, and bound him by the wrist to a column in the hall. You can believe that Satan was present and was breathing hatred into those that were about to carry out this punishment. Victims were likely to clench their teeth 
and the muscles in their body would tense up as they bear down, anticipating that first strike. And the soldiers begin, and they take turns in scourging Jesus. He is repeatedly struck from different angles on the back, the shoulders, the arms, the sides, the hamstrings, the calves. And we've got to remember that Jesus' skin had already experienced some trauma from when he was sweating blood. As the scourging commences, lacerations are formed from the small pieces of shard or bone, while the balls of lead cause great trauma to the underlying skin and tissue. The the initial lacerations are more superficial, but it doesn't take too many lashes before the depths of the cuts reach the muscles. This would cause the pieces of bone or shard to start tearing away blood vessels and nerves and ribbons of muscle and skin, pretty much detaching them from where they were being held. The trauma would have been so intense that it likely caused shivers to go down his spine. And because the blood vessels are being torn, there's profuse bleeding at this point, and his back is becoming nothing more than a red surface. The wounds are getting deeper as the flagrum continues to pound away into the soft tissue, the tendons, the ligaments, and the muscle fibers. The blood continues to pour down his back, and it starts to cover the large paving stones where he's standing. The blood loss is pretty significant, and Jesus by this point is likely nauseated. His face is becoming more pale. Blood pressure is dropping, and the heart rate is increasing as the body tries to compensate for the blood loss. His breathing is becoming more rapid. The muscles are twitching and contracting, and his legs are giving out. And it's likely that if if he had not been bound by the arms onto the column, he would have just slipped down onto the pool of blood beneath him. They continue to strike him until he nearly faints, and his executioners finally come to a stopping point as their orders are to scourge and weaken Jesus but not kill him. Jesus is then mocked with a purple robe, and they put a reed in his right hand. They then realize the only thing that is missing in completing Jesus' kingship in mocking form is a crown. The bundle of thorns is taken from a tree that is flexible enough to mold into a crown, and these thorns are much longer, sharper, and harder compared to most trees. They bind this crown of thorns onto the head of Jesus, and the thorns dig into the scalp. Now, there are two major nerves in the head that supply the smaller nerve endings that elicit pain perception, and they are the trigeminal nerve, which supplies the front half of the head, and the greater occipital branch, which supplies the back of the head. When these nerves become inflamed, it typically results in conditions called trigeminal and occipital neuralgia, which can produce a really sharp and intense burning sensation. When they are inflamed, they can even be triggered by simple things like chewing and talking, light touch, and even the temperature. So as the soldiers are striking Jesus on his head with reeds, it's likely that he felt excruciating pains all throughout his head that could have radiated even deep into the ears. The thorns have also penetrated the layers of the skin that cover the skull, and there are five layers. One of those layers is dense connective tissue, and it contains the veins of the scalp. If you've ever hit your head and had a cut open up, you'd likely see a good bit of bleeding because the scalp is a very vascular area. 
So as the thorns penetrate these veins, it could have caused even more blood loss. Jesus is then presented before his accusers, and even even though the grotesque appearance of his body is shocking to many, they're still not satisfied. They demand his crucifixion. And from there, according to Jewish customs, the Romans return Jesus' garments. But prior to this, they have to remove the purple robe that he is wearing. And by now, the blood from the wounds, uh, from the scourging, have stuck to the robe. So the act of tearing it off would elicit excruciating pain and cause the wounds to start bleeding again. Just imagine that you suffered a skin tear on your arm and you placed a piece of tissue or paper towel on top of it. The blood clots and it dries, causing it to be stuck. And typically, the way that you would remove this is to lubricate it with some water and you gently detach it from the wound. But this was not the case for Jesus. As they forcibly removed the robe, each thread that was stuck to the raw surface of his wounded body would have torn away the skin, along with several nerve endings, and this would have triggered an unbelievable wane of pain throughout his body. Now, there are debates on whether Jesus was ordered to carry the entire cross or just the horizontal beam called the patibulum. And while there's no definitive conclusion to this debate, one thing is certain, and that is Jesus bearing his own cross, making his way along Via Dolorosa. Along the way, with the extensive amount of fluid loss from sweating and bleeding, the weight of the cross would be too much for him, and Jesus would stumble and fall. And because his muscles are drastically weakened by this point, he is unable to pick up the cross again. The centurion who is impatiently wanting to continue on with the crucifixion, he appoints Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross for Jesus. Jesus continues to bleed, and his muscles are twitching and cramping, but he continues on until they arrive at Golgotha. The clothes are once again stripped from Jesus, and the coat similar to the purple robe, is once again stuck to the wounds of his upper body. The painful shocks would have been reintroduced as his garments are once again forcibly removed. They laid Jesus on his back, where the open wounds are now covered with dust and small pieces of gravel. One of the soldiers holds out Jesus' arm with the palm of his hand pointing towards the sky. And a large nail, approximately seven inches in length, is placed on his wrist And with a single blow of the hammer, the nail is fixed into the patibulum. A few more vigorous taps, and the nail is secured completely. And they repeat the same process for the other arm as well. Now, according to the historical text, the hand was made up of the fingers, the palm, and the wrist. Now, there have been studies and experiments performed on cadavers where they drove the nails into the palms of the hands. The results show that the force exerted onto the hands by the weight of the body as it is hanging would cause the nail to tear through the flesh. However, if the nail is placed on the wrist, the weight of the body would be supported by what's called the transverse carpal ligament and the wrist bones. Now, this was something strategically done to make sure the weight of the body was supported and also to make sure the median nerve was penetrated. Now, I'm not sure if anyone here has personally experienced or knows anyone who's had carpal tunnel syndrome, but when that nerve is compressed from inflammation to the surrounding tendons or ligaments, it creates a very uncomfortable pain and numbness and tingling down towards the fingers. 
It would have caused Jesus' hands to contract in a jerking motion as the nails were being fixed into the wood. Now, this is only the patibulum, and the soldiers must now affix Jesus to the vertical post. The soldiers would bend his knees, rotate his legs to the side, and they would place his feet one on top of the other, and they would drive a nail into the middle of the foot in between the second and third metatarsal bones. This would have likely penetrated the perineal and the plantar nerves in the feet, which would elicit a similar pain, numbness, tingling, and burning sensation throughout his feet. This specific location on the feet would support the weight of the body by the bones of the ankles. The crown of thorns still remains on his head, and Jesus would have likely been leaning his head forward, as each time his body is straightened, there would be the pricking of the thorns on the back of his head. A wooden sign called a titulus is fixed onto the cross, and the purpose of this was to identify the individual being crucified and their crime. This sign was another attempt to mock Jesus, as it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The cross is erected in an upright position, and Jesus is now being crucified on a cross in between two thieves. Now, in order to breathe in or inhale, the diaphragm, which is a large muscle that separates the chest cavity from the abdominal cavity, it contracts and it pulls downward. At the same time, the muscles between the ribs, they contract and they pull upward. This increases the size of the thoracic cavity, and as a a result, air rushes in and it fills the lungs. And then in order to breathe out or exhale, the diaphragm relaxes and it rises back up. The size of the thoracic cavity decreases, the lungs contract, and the air is forced out. But as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the weight of his body pulls down the diaphragm, and the air that moves into his lungs are basically trapped there. So in other words, Jesus is literally suffocating as he is hanging on the cross. In order to properly breathe out, he must push himself up with his feet to allow that diaphragm to relax. You can imagine how agonizing it would be for Jesus to take even a short breath. Because each time he wants to do this, he needs to turn his legs, push from his nailed feet against the cross, and this would cause the shooting pains in his hands as his wrists would rotate against the fixed nail as he is lifting his body. And not only that, but as he tries to rise, the wounds of the back and buttocks would scrape against the rough wooden post. And after this short and painful breath, he would slump back down in a sudden motion because of the pain and fatigue. As more time passes, there's less and less oxygen circulating throughout his body because of the shallow breathing, the thickened blood from severe dehydration, and blood loss. His muscles would be severely cramping, and they would have spasmodic contractions because they need oxygen in order to relax. Jesus' body is bordering a state of collapse, and it's no longer functioning the way that it should because of the increased buildup of carbon dioxide that would result in the highly acidic nature of his body or blood circulating throughout the body. The body typically compensates for this through hyperventilation, but as I explained a moment ago, this is not possible for Jesus. He has not eaten or drank anything since the previous evening, 
all the sweating and bleeding that would amount to the sum total of fluid loss is resulting in hypovolemia. He's fatigued, his mouth and throat are dry. As we read in Psalm 22, my tongue sticks to my jaws. There is a shooting and burning sensation all across his head and face from the crown of thorns. The penetrated nerves in his hands and feet remain in contact with the large nails, so every vibration, shake, and movement would stimulate the horrible shooting pains all over again. All the muscles in his arms, legs, neck, back, chest, abdomen, ribs are all strained and cramping. His shoulders, elbows, and wrists were likely dislocated from the weight of the body as he hangs on the cross. We read about this in Psalm 22 where it says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. And all the while, he continues to slowly suffocate as he hangs on the cross. As more time passes, Jesus' body continues to slowly wither away as he suffers through the agonizing crucifixion. And with the sins of the world upon him, Jesus would suffer a spiritual death where he was separated from God. The father must now turn away from his beloved son on the cross. And this is the first time that Jesus does not address God as his father. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to think that all the physical pain that he endured up until now did not compare to the pain of being forsaken by his father. Charles Spurgeon would go to say this, our Lord was then in the darkest part of his way. He had, tried, he had trodden the winepress now for hours, and the work was almost finished. He had reached the culminating point of his anguish. This is his dolorous lament from the lowest pit of misery. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I do not think that the records of time or even eternity contain a sentence more full of anguish here the wormwood and the gall and all the other bitterness are outdone. Here you may look as into a vast abyss, and though you strain your eyes and gaze till sight fails you, yet perceive no bottom. It is measureless, unfathomable, inconceivable. This anguish of the Savior on your behalf and mine is no more to be measured and weighed than the sin which needed it, or with the love that endured it. The cup has been drained, and the work is now complete. Jesus draws himself up once more to painfully utter the words, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And Jesus would willfully surrender his life and finally breathe his last. A common method of ending a crucifixion more quickly was to break the bones of the victim's legs, this would speed up the process by preventing them from being able to push themselves up to catch a breath and would result in rapid suffocation. When the soldiers arrive at Jesus after breaking the legs of the two thieves, they saw that this wasn't necessary. And in order to make certain of Jesus' death, one of the legionnaires drives a lance through his right chest cavity. After immediately withdrawing the lance, there poured out blood and water. Now, the purpose of penetrating from the right side would be to make sure that the liver, the lungs, and the heart were all pierced. Because if the victim was not yet dead from the crucifixion, 
the driving of the lance would surely take care of that. The chambers of the heart would have been filled with blood at the time of death because it was no longer pumping. This would account for the blood that pours out after the lance is removed and fluid accumulated in the lungs and the sac surrounding the heart from trauma would account for the appearance of water. The prophetic word of God has been fulfilled as it is reported in John 19, starting from 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, would secretly ask Pilate that he might retrieve the body of Jesus. He, along with Nicodemus, would bind Jesus' body in linen cloths and spices, as was the burial custom of the Jews. In the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And this is the account of the physical sufferings endured by Jesus on Calvary. I'd like to close out this sermon by sharing a few essential conclusions I've come to as it pertains to the passion of the Christ. Now, I can assure you that there are plenty more things that can be added to this list but these are just some of the things I've come to reflect on mostly and really come to appreciate. And please keep in mind that these are just condensed summaries, and there's probably a whole lot more that can be said on each subject. And these are not in any particular order of importance. First, Calvary demonstrates the humanity of Jesus. The fact that God would humble himself to the point of becoming a man in the form of Jesus, is one of the greatest mysteries of God. But as John 1.14 would tell us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was physically born of a woman. He went through the stages of development as an infant, toddler, child, teenager, and adult. He experienced hunger and thirst as we do. He needed nutrients, water. He also needed sleep for rest, regeneration, and development. His body functioned in the same way our bodies function. Jesus worked as a carpenter. He walked with people, communicated with them. He participated in their joys, their sorrows, conflicts, and hardships. Jesus experienced emotions. Like any other man, he was tempted but was without sin. Jesus experienced bodily pain in the same way that we experience them. And even though he was fully human and fully divine, he didn't cheat physical suffering and death because of his divine nature. He endured all of it. And what's more, he did it willingly. And at the end of this torturous event, in the absence of brain function, Jesus physically died on the cross. And upon his death, his body was retrieved, wrapped, and buried in a tomb. Calvary also demonstrates the divinity of Jesus, and it highlights the authenticity and significance of the resurrection. Now, we know that the narrative of the crucifixion does not end with his death and burial, because three days later, 
Jesus would victoriously rise again. And this is the amazing, prophecy-fulfilled, hope-filling, God-glorifying gospel news of Jesus that vindicates his claim in being the Son of God and declares that he has conquered death and reigns as Lord of all. Since he is the creator and author of life, he alone can be victorious over the grave. He alone has the power to remove the pain and sting of death. And he alone has the power to reverse the horrible nature of death. And this is why I believe that the collective events of the passion of the Christ is one of, if not the most important subject matter to meditate on. Everything that pertains to our lives now as believers, every thought process, every decision we make that relates to Jesus and our faith, it hinges on his divine resurrection. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Out of all the things that mark the divinity of Jesus, his immaculate conception, the entirety of his ministry, his atoning sacrifice, his resurrection, and his returning, there's none that is more important at this point in time than the eyewitness testimony of his literal bodily resurrection to affirm the divinity of Christ. And yet, how much more encouraging for us as believers to know that he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Calvary also demonstrates the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. I've come to wonder, even in myself and the church in general, if sin is viewed as Scripture intended. Because without taking the time to study and reflect on the concept of sin, it can really be eluding in its definition, understanding, and application. I'll briefly start by stating what sin is not. Sin is not making mistakes, struggles, bad deeds or habits, or moral shortcomings. These are merely the symptoms of sin, and viewing sin in this light will lead to the misconception that it's something that needs to be overcome in order to achieve a greater sense of moral purity, or something that we need to get rid of in our lives to reach a level of being a better Christian. Now, these misconceptions will ultimately result in the heretical belief in viewing Jesus as our eternal get-out-of-hell-free insurance as opposed to our Lord and our Savior because this fails to view God as the primary offended target. Scripture views sin as a far more serious condition that expands to a greater depth than we can imagine. Sin is essentially the transgression of God's law and will. And the law of God is not an external code that results in him handing out punishments to those who violate that code. God's law and will are expressions of his divine character and personality. It's who he is. It reflects a perfect, eternal, 
holy, sovereign, righteous, just, and loving God who cannot tolerate or overlook sin. And any violation against the law of God is a direct violation against God himself. Nathaniel Dimmick was an evangelical theologian who said, there can be nothing in the demands of the law, the severity of the law, condemnation of the law, death of the law, and the curse of the law, which is not a reflection in part of the perfections of God. Whatever is due to the law is due to the law because it is the law of God and is due, therefore, to God himself. And the reality of sin is that it's embedded into the very heart and nature of man. We want to be our own God and place our desires above that of the creator. And this is a serious offense committed against the holy God that is absolutely deserving of eternal condemnation. Church, we cannot solely focus on the redeeming love of God and downplay the holiness of God because they are mutually harmonious with one another. If you consider the Old Testament, it's filled with examples of God's divine response to sin. And Romans 6.23 tells us, the wages of sin is death. And Calvary, Jesus crucified, shows God's divine holiness executing just retribution against our rebellion. And while God cannot overlook sin, he has lovingly and graciously provided a means of repentance. And Calvary goes to show that God desires to see both justice and mercy prevail. And it did in the form of Jesus bearing the wrath of God for our sins. The sinless son of God paid the penalty for sin even though he knew no sin. And unless sin is viewed from this perspective, we will completely misunderstand our true identity in Christ, the redemptive healing that is only possible by God's grace and mercy in the form of a crucified Jesus and the eternal hope that we now have in the form of a resurrected Jesus. So let me be clear on this. We do not stand justified before God because we feel guilt and shame over our sins or because we're trying to better ourselves by removing sins from our lives. We stand justified and righteous before God only because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Amen. Next, I've come to truly appreciate Jesus' final words prior to his death as it represents so many of his divine attributes. Let us not forget how agonizing it was for him to simply take one short breath, let alone muster the strength to speak while hanging on the cross. When Jesus is on the cross, he speaks seven short phrases. First, he speaks to the Roman soldiers that were casting lots for his garments. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the mercy of Jesus. The second speaks to the penitent thief. Truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. This is the grace of Jesus. The third speaks to his beloved apostle John and his mother Mary. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. 
And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is the compassion of Jesus. The fourth cries to the heavenly father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is the agony of Jesus. The crucifixion is gradually coming to an end and Jesus' body is reaching near critical levels. He cries out a fifth time where he says, I thirst. And this is the humanity of Jesus. The final moments are at hand and Jesus cries out a sixth time and says, it is finished. This is the atonement of Jesus. His mission of redemption has come to its conclusion and he can finally allow his body to die. With one final surge of remaining strength, he again presses his feet against the nail, straightens his legs and cries out for the seventh and final time, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This is the obedience of Jesus. Just a couple more points, I promise. Next, Calvary reminds us of the immense love that God has for us. Now, God's divine love is one of those concepts that dangerously offers the possibility of it being understood on an intellectual level, but incorrectly applied in our lives, because we might have the tendency to view it from the perspective of human love, because human love can have so many limitations to it. Just to name a few, it can be situational, purely emotional, physical. It can have certain expectations that come with it. It can be conditional. It can be envious, boastful, self-centered, and even selective. And for us to view God's love for us in the form of human love, it would often mislead us to feel loved by God based on the circumstances of our lives. Things are going really well for me right now, so God must truly love me. And on the contrary, we might be inclined to question God's love for us in times of hardships, or it might make us consider how his love might be withheld from us because of what we've done. But this is not the way the love of God is supposed to be viewed. The definition of God's divine love, or maybe another word that we have heard in the past, agape love, is a form of love that seeks the highest good for a person that is loved regardless of the circumstances. This is the form of love in which God operates towards us. We read in 1 John 4 that God is love, which means that he simply doesn't express love. He is the author of it. He fully embodies divine love. This form of love is gracious. It's unmerited. It's always seeking to benefit the ones that he loves. It cannot be compelled, manipulated, altered, or even predetermined. And one of the greatest ways this agape love is demonstrated to us is on Calvary. We read this in Romans 5, 8, where it says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And again in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the extent of God's perfect love. And in the expression of his divine love for us, God chose to redeem mankind who was self-centered and sinful by nature. Calvary was not an act of impulse because God finally came to the realization 
that mankind was hopeless and we needed help. This was a part of the plan even before the earth was formed. So make no mistake about it, church. We are absolutely loved by God. And Calvary is the perfect demonstration of his divine love for us. But the love that he has for us and demonstrated for us is not and cannot be the climax of Calvary. And this is my final point for the morning. We cannot look to the cross and spend the rest of our days simply declaring how much he loves us because that would not be sufficient and we would be missing the greatest and most important point, which is that God in his divinity and majesty is of the utmost glory and most worthy to be praised for all eternity. The great theologian Jonathan Edwards did not refer to God's glory as simply another one of his attributes or characteristics. Rather, he said it is the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Glory is the radiance of God that combines all of his attributes, some of which include his justice, holiness, love, mercy, power, and sovereignty. And all of these can be observed on the cross of Jesus. On the cross, we see God's holiness and justice through the judgment of sin, his love and mercy through the redemption of man, his power as he conquers Satan and death, and his sovereignty in the resurrection of Jesus. The cross is the ultimate display of God's glory, and it is absolutely worthy of all praise. Now, I understand we're not Presbyterian, but the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asked, what is the chief end of man? And the response is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is why we were created in the first place. We were created to praise him, glorify him, honor him, enjoy him, serve him, love him, and all because he is worthy. Church, the pinnacle of Calvary is this. Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is most worthy and deserving of all eternal praise and worship. Now, the gospel news of Jesus extends forgiveness and restoration to anyone who would receive it in faith. And while there might be a list of reasons for some of you on why this might seem impossible, would you come to recognize that every reason on that list becomes completely undone when you come to see that not only does Jesus offer this, but he desires this of you. Christ has willingly paid our debt of sin once and for all on the cross. And in his resurrection, he invites us, those who have failed him in every possible way, to trust him and follow him as members of his redeemed people and to be a part of his mission to seek and save the lost. So today, if you're still questioning on whether or not you would surrender your life to Christ, or maybe you've drifted away from Jesus to follow the desires of your own heart, would you in faith make that decision to repent and receive his grace and salvation? It's the most important decision you'll make in your life. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And as the psalmist would say, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his birth, 
his life, his death, his resurrection, and heavenly ascension as the eternal Son of God who paid the penalty of sin on our behalf. And it is by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus that we stand righteous before you and nothing else. There are no other claims that we could possibly bring to you that would qualify us to be in your presence other than our faith in Christ. That alone would be sufficient to demonstrate the entirety of your glory, and yet you continue to shower us with abundant grace and mercy and love. Truly, Father, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I pray that we would be a church body that is set in our minds to always be in pursuit of holiness and righteous and your glory alone, that you would be the joy of our hearts and the praise from our lips. We love you, dear Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.